0: Welcome to the Political Economy Forum's podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, Election Security and the Fate of Democracy in the 21st Century. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. On today's episode, we will address the role of online misinformation in contemporary American discourse, what it means for the public to be informed, and the potential of misinformation to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 elections. Co-hosting with me today is Morgan Wack, the producer of this podcast and a researcher at the election integrity partnership hello morgan hi james we are fortunate today to have as our guest professor jevin west jevin is an associate professor in the information school at the university of washington and director of its center for an informed public jevin is also the co-founder of the uw data lab a hub for research on data science and analytics whose aim is to quote resist strategic misinformation promote an informed society and strengthen democratic discourse And he recently published a book with Carl Bergstrom on misinformation titled, Calling BS, Data Reasoning in a Digital World. Hello, Jevin. Hi, James, and hi, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Great, so Jevin, I thought we could start by having us, have you discuss the work that you are doing at the Center and that your colleagues are doing at the Center for an Informed Public. And and what is the role of academic research in the study of misinformation and social media?
1: Yeah, well, it's a big we because there's a lot of people involved with this, a lot of units on campus, a lot of internal partners, a lot of external partners. We launched in December of last year, which seems like a lifetime ago. And the goal was exactly as you uh, introduced me, which was to resist strategic misinformation, promote an informed society and strengthen democratic discourse. So how do you do that on a campus? I think there's lots of different ways. But of course, we want to appeal to our expertise. And for us, that's in research and education. So those are two major pillars of what we do. But also, we incorporate a lot of work and effort around policy. And that's led by Ryan Kahlo, who's a law professor um, here at UW. And also, of course, community engagement. I mean, engaging with the community and translating the things that we're learning from the research. So that's, what we're up to as a model but of course when the pandemic hit uh it was a crisis of you know epic proportions and it really uh hit at some of our expertise within the center so a lot of our expertise are uh, comes from researchers that have spent a career studying rumors and misinformation during crisis events and we are certainly in the middle of one of those and we are certainly in the middle of a different kind of crisis too, what some are calling an infodemic. It was popularized by the World Health Organization back in February, but it's certainly a term that researchers have been thinking about for a long time. And so your question about what does research have, what can it bring to these uh, issues? Well, certainly we can apply some of our methodology for really trying to get at understanding, for example, the amplification of misinformation and the application of influencers. We can understand, where these things root, how they spread. What's the role of researchers in all of this and research more generally? Well, this field of let's call misinformation studies is relatively new. Um, And the goal of the center was to devote researchers' thought and time to studying this very topic. And so when the Knight Foundation gave us this this funding to start the center, it really was about forming a field that would train leaders and students and soon to be faculty and journalists and government leaders, et cetera, that are experts in this area. It's partly, you know, due to the fact that this is never going to go away. This is <laughs> this is a topic that will be around for a very, very long time, but also because there really isn't a, a field devoted to that. There's people in psychology they're working on, people in computational social science and people in philosophy that think about epistemology. There's they're, they're scattered all around campus, but we needed a place to bring these people together that are thinking about it. And what they can bring are those research methodologies from these different disciplines. They can be careful and they can have long-term vision in, in studying this issue. Because again, it's going to be around here, unfortunately, for a very long time. And one of the comparisons I like is the comparison of this center or maybe this field to public health, for example. In the early 1900s, this field didn't exist, but people came along and said, You know, we should probably devote a lot of thinking to public health. And now you can't imagine a campus without a public health, especially one with a big medical school like ourselves. So maybe in the future, there really will be kind of centers for an informed public across the country and in different centers devoted to the research, to understanding the how and why and when and and, and the kinds of things that researchers do, but interacting very much with the community practitioners and journalists and government leaders as well.
0: So you mentioned COVID as a crisis event, and I'm wondering if we can consider this election coming up as a crisis event or crisis events around it. And if you can speak a little bit specifically about what the center is doing around the election.
1: Yeah, so all of these events and crisis events, they interact in, in ways that it's hard to separate them. They're all kind of part of this web. And as you pull one, the other gets pulled along. So the pandemic and the, the misinformation and disinformation that we see in the pandemic really connects. So intimately to what we're seeing of course in the election and so everything we study when it comes to misinformation disinformation seems to have this connection whether it's it's even things around climate change or of course even things around you know the social movement that we've seen all these things sort of connect and so We, you know, we've decided as a center that we wanted to devote a lot of our time over the next several months to to studying misinformation and disinformation related to the election, so we formed a collaboration with Stanford University and Graphica and 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 a couple other labs, uh, DFR lab that is focused on this, and so it's something we call the Election Integrity Partnership. It's something that Morgan's a part of and could speak very well to, and it's it's a project where we are monitoring in real time misinformation and disinformation. In fact, we have shifts set up with the students and postdocs and faculty, and I've been you know I have feared that I would want to commit to something like this for the last several years partly because it's a, real, it's a real commitment if you're going to try to monitor in real time misinformation. But we've, we've committed, and we're doing it, and we um, have been putting posts out. Actually, Morgan, hopefully, we will get to talk a little bit about one of his posts recently, just actually came up today from that, that work. And what we're doing there is we're looking specifically at election integrity. So we're not doing debunking of misinformation from something that Biden said or Trump said. that We're going to leave that to the political commentators and the fact-checking organizations. And we spend our effort looking at election integrity issues that we consider a nonpartisan issue. So these are issues specifically around, let's say, procedural interference. So those would be like a a post that you might see on Facebook that says the election date has been changed or something. Uh, Participation interference. So that would be Don't you know? Don't go vote because the line's too long, or you know these kinds of things. And there's lots of incarnations of these things, of course. And then, of course, fraud, and also layered on top of those would be looking at efforts to delegitimize the um, the election, both before and after. So that's our efforts right now. It's this election integrity partnership. It is you know really moving along. We're doing a lot of really interesting work. And I would say if your your listeners are interested, go. You can find us at our center, Center for an Informed Public. We'll have links to that election integrity partnership or you can just search election
2: integrity partnership and it should pop up in your typical search engine. That's great, Jevin. I have a quick follow-up on that. So I've been really enjoying my work with the election integrity partnership. And I think the work with with Stanford, the DRF lab and Graphica, digging into a lot of these specific issues and specific posts that have come out of this has been really enlightening for me and allowed me to see kind of what's going on behind the curtain. And I'm wondering, I know we've had a lot of people write into this podcast and to James about studying misinformation more generally and i'm not sure if that's you know reflective of the audience of this podcast or the general public and as the election gets closer i'm wondering if you feel that the academic and the research community's emphasis on the importance of misinformation and the focus that you put on this in your own work is reflected within the larger community or at least within the voting population
1: well, I think there might be a little bit of a selection bias issue. Your listeners are, are, are probably a little bit more concerned about this issue of misinformation. But I think generally, we have seen it reflected in the general public. So before COVID hit, when we were doing town hall on the road visits, so we were going and setting up town halls. We had one in Seattle. And we had some planned actually across the state of Washington and, and many of the other in-person events that we were doing. And I would even say the virtual events we're doing that include a more random, you no, know, I wouldn't say fully random selection of the population, but I would say, you know, certainly more than just maybe the listeners of an academic podcast, although this isn't just academic, it's likely a, a public one as well, that people are concerned about this. Um, I've spent, I spent a lot of my time talking to people in rural areas and in urban areas and, and people from different political persuasions. And I, I do feel that people in general are concerned about this. I think, you know, even if you look at people that get most of their news from cable news, and actually it turns out about 50% of, of Americans still get the majority of their news from cable news, they, they even sort of see the problems with what's going on in that information ecosystem. So I do think that the public more generally is paying attention, and that's a good thing. It's a bad thing that we have to pay attention to this, but certainly it has started to reach crisis levels. And you can see that locally, too. So in the fires that everyone was experiencing, and I mean everyone, because everyone at some point had smoke breathing in their lungs here in the Pacific Northwest and on the West Coast, many of those efforts were being directly affected by misinformation and disinformation that was be posted on Facebook. And that led to 911 call centers being jammed, because too many people were calling in about some Facebook post that they saw uh, that turned out to not be the case that either some Antifa person or Proud Boys had started another fire. And so it can directly affect us. So I, people are seeing this in their lives personally. And again, this is across the political spectrum. And so I do think the public is sort of feeling the same things that we are in the academic world where we spend you know, day and night thinking about this topic.
0: Jevin, why do you think the topic of electoral integrity itself has become weaponized? I mean, if we think of the, the influence of social media and Russian hacks in 2016, it was more about the candidates themselves or other aspects of American life that, were, that had a lot of misinformation. But now it's, the, it's fraud and elect- electoral integrity themselves being weaponized. Why do you think that is now?
1: Yeah, I, there's always a major narrative that's running along these major events, and and certainly the the fraudulent election uh, narrative is percolating in all aspects of, of of social media conversations around the election. And I think part of it is due to the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, and that people are concerned that going to more mail in ballots. Uh, you know, would, you know, change the election when in fact, there's very little evidence of fraud. We have been having, we've had mail-in ballot voting for a very long time. And actually a large percentage of our, our votes have come in that way. Many states, as we know, including here in the state of Washington and Hawaii and Colorado and Utah, you can name all these different states that have been doing this. There's many reasons not to be worried, but just the fact that there is some uncertainty around that and there's some newness to it, that's when propagandists and and opportunists sweep on in and and sort of seed that doubt and that uncertainty and that's this isn't this isn't being due to you know due in any sort of very uh, like clever hiding behind the cloak method. this is being Broadcasted out in the open from news channels and our leaders of, our, of the world of the free world sort of claiming this kind of thing right now that it, that we should be prepared for a, a fraudulent election and that's to me is, is incredibly concerning and we 're seeing more of that, like you said, when you compare that to two thousand and sixteen there's lots of similarities of course between two thousand and sixteen. And 2020, but that's certainly one difference in that the narrative is what's being this this new narrative around mail-in ba- balloting and b- ballot harvesting and mail dumping and and just sort of uh, qu- questions of the uh, you know, questioning the integrity of the election. And again, it's driven by some things that are partially true. This is usually how disinformation campaigns work. There's some things that are partially true. What is true is that there will be some changes in some states and more opportunities for mail-in balloting. That. At a scale that we haven't seen before. It's it's there's again there's many reasons not to be worried, but there is some there is truth that there is some change there, and that we're having this particular narrative be pushed in, in coordinated ways and strategic ways across social media. That and we've seen we've seen this, and others have seen the same thing. And what we mean by coordinated is that you'll have you'll have different groups posting at similar times. You see also intent always like miss. Uh, assigned an intent a lot in these posts. So they'll say, oh, this postal service person that dumped this mail, which that may even be a true piece of news, even though it's a very rare piece of news, they can say, oh, this person's a Republican or they're a Democrat, or they may frame it in ways that are unfair using a video or an image or a meme from a completely different election with an image of, you know, a postal service person or, you know, ballot stuffing or something that has nothing to do with right now. So that's sort of misaligning the framing. It's a lot of times they're exaggerated. And of course, there's just that strategic amplification that I I already mentioned. So, you know, I think what's happening now is there's a narrative that seems to be that's got some teeth into people and it's getting pushed and it will continue to get pushed until November 3rd for sure. And after, of course.
0: Is it one sided?
1: It's not fully one sided. I would certainly say that more conversations around this that we've seen when 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 studying this online is certainly. More from the political right, but we do see things even from the left. Like I'll give you an example because a lot, a lot of, a lot of the, the listeners will probably probably be, you know, from the left. I shouldn't assume that it might not be the case, and we we always assume sort of as much as we can, uh, you know, and try to make our conversations nonpartisan. But we do have some from the left. So as an example, we saw one post from the Rachel Maddow Show from MSNBC posting a padlocked postal boxes, and if you did a little work and did some. A little bit of investigative work on these images, you found that those were padlocked postal boxes from a long time ago. I mean, that have been around. It wasn't just that they were done right there. So I think, uh, you know, at least this, the narratives that we see more on the left when it comes to this issue is that the postal service is not functioning correctly and everything is getting shut down and postal boxes are being shipped off on semis and being dumped out there. I mean, that's, that's one narrative, but certainly the predominant narrative by a large margin is that mail in ballots are not a safe way of doing elections and i hope you don't edit just right there that that's not the case there's plenty of evidence that they are <laughs> safe and we you know there's very little evidence of fraud that at least that i'm aware of i'm not an expert in this area but from everything i've read and my uh, my colleagues that's that is the case but that's the narrative that certainly ballot boxes are the, the mail in balloting is something we should be questioning
2: uh, before the election and after the election yeah, I think those are great points. I'm I'm wondering what aspects you think complexity and emotion play in the spread of these particular narratives. So I think I've seen on a number of tickets with the EIP, these, these same narratives that you're bringing up, this ballot dumping, um, the incompetence of the post office, or whether it's deliberate or non-deliberate, you see these narratives spread when the images themselves or the videos may be from years prior. What do you think the role is of the pandemic in and the election in general of ri- you know, raising emotions at this point in time where people are quick to jump on particular narratives that fit their side? Um, And also, what what portion of this do you think can be explained by complexity? Because I think that when I've seen misinformation in the past, offline and online, it tends to revolve around issues that are not necessarily straightforward. While we might think that, you know, mail-in ballots are not something that has a load of complexity, the intricacies of millions of pieces of mail being transported across the United States from different different jurisdictions is actually something that is incredibly complex. And when you tie these things together, I think there are a lot of narratives that can be input with a lot of different worldviews. And so I'm interested, interested in hearing what you have to say about the role of emotion and just the intricacies that are involved in these narratives.
1: I mean, those are great points, Morgan. And because we're humans, we respond strongly to emotional stimuli and the social media platforms and the algorithms running all these experiments every millisecond of the day know how to tap into these emotions. And those that designed rumors and conspiracy theories to spread purposely know very much that if, we ta- if you tap into a user's emotions, they're more likely to click on it, read it and, sh- and spread it. Anything that can tap into that anxiety that we're all feeling sort of collectively right now around the pandemic, that uncertainty that that's certainly out there around the pandemic and and the election certainly allows for again other simple explanations to sweep in to overcome those the, the complexity anxiety too that we have. so if something seems so complex, it, it just seems much more comforting to have a simple Uh, a simple explanation of what's going on. And in this case, because it is very complex, as you mentioned, something you think would be so simple as as Mellon voting, there are all these checks and balances that have to go into play and they are into play. But if no one's had a chance to really think through it, the first thing that might come to their mind as they're reading a post on Facebook might be, ah, well, there's just no way that this isn't going to be, you know, it was subterfuge, subterfuge is not going to be involved in this. And people are going to, come in and stuff ballots when, in fact, it's one of those situations, if you do pause and think about it a little bit more, that it's, a, it's one of those high-risk criminal activities with low reward. Because even if you steal 100 then, and you can be prosecuted and put in jail, it's one of those things that taps into that emotion so you don't have time to sort of think through it or ask questions about the complexity. And also just uncertainty in general. I mean, the reason why conspiracy theories travel so far and fast during crisis events like the pandemic or any crisis event that we've had before, those that are more short in time and those that are longer-term ones like the pandemic, those are the times when we see the highest density of misinformation. And there are professionals. I mean, it sounds awful, but there are people that make their living waiting for crisis events and then sweeping in, gaining influence, and then using that influence, of course, to make money ultimately and, and further influence. So I would say this: the question about emotion. I mean, emotion is just just if you could measure it. I'm, I'm sure there's psychologists that know how to do this. They're, the emotions are high right now. The pandemic really has heightened those fears and anxieties, and of course there is some newness to this particular election. We're in the middle of a pandemic and that's requiring other forms of voting procedures that are receiving a little more attention than others. And so that's a time to just, to sort of push these narratives. So I think emotion and complexity really do play an important role in in this. And actually most people don't mention the complexity thing but I think it's a really good point that you're making, Morgan, and if we had more time we could dig into
0: that even further. Let me play devil's advocate for a second and ask the question, so what, who cares? I mean, so I get emotional reading something. And so I think the wrong thing about something that was complex was what difference does it make? You know, I can read the New York Times and read something and get upset. I can read the Washington Post and it's complex and I understand it or don't. I can look up at the stars and think that the universe is is an emotional and complex place. Isn't an aspect of what you're doing sort of social engineering by trying to tell people exactly how they should feel and then resolve the complexity for them in the way that you want as opposed to the way that they want?
1: Absolutely. And it's good to have a devil. We need more devils in, in here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah. So, I, the way I look at it is it's not, doesn't so much matter that we get. emotional reaction when reading something from let's say the wall street journal the new york times or something that we see on cable tv it's that it's in higher densities than the more nuanced articles that dig more into the complexities of the newest tax bill or the ways in which the the voting system works so the the fact that these algorithms have Tapped into that. If you just took a random sample of postings that you find on Facebook and we I wish we had the time we could do it in this podcast I could do we could do it sort of in real time real quickly. You'd see that the clickbait or the the headlines that are meant to be clickbait most often have either promises of experiences or ignite some sort of uh, strong emotion in some ways. And so it's sort of manipulating us in ways that aren't genuine to what's being possibly sought out by the users. And we're easily yeah, manipulated. The users can
0: just not engage with it. They're still making a conscious choice to engage with it.
1: Totally, totally. Now, if we weren't humans and we were maybe bees or something that maybe I don't know, maybe bees are manipulated easily by emotion too, but because we're we're humans, it would be kind of like saying well, I know you're not, you know, it is ultimately your choice not to eat a bunch of sugar or to take these drugs on the playground. But, you know, if you just give it enough times pretty soon, um, you know, it, certainly there should be some accountability, no doubt. In fact, <laughs> I spend most of my time trying to, you know, teach, uh, you know, the public and my students how to become better consumers. So they aren't manipulated by these emotions and sort of be better BS callers. But, but I think there's some responsibility at the, at the system level to at least not allow for too many drugs and manipulative <laughs> clickbait headlines to, to be surfacing around. So that's all we hit, because there are some people that are better at it. There's some people who can just say, yeah, I'm not going to read that. Um, but there's also those that might be tired at the end of the day and finish their second job and trying to get their kids homework on online. And they just want to check the news and all they see is emotion evoking BS. And I think if that's all our platforms produce and all the news produces, then it's probably not good for the system at large. But I agree with you. Ultimately, there should be some accountability by the individual themselves.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I do think when, James, you're speaking about the individuals being able to differentiate or discriminate between misinformation and non-misinformation, I think a lot of of the issues that people have brought up is that they're not actually seeing the same pieces of information across this political spectrum or across the country in any particular way, right? These, this siloing of content based on personal characteristics or online data has presented each individual or each group of individuals with a different shared reality. And so I'm, I know it sounds hyperbolic to talk about this siloing, but it really is the incentives of these platforms, as Jevin has talked about, to promote content that does inflame this emotion, that does hit us where we find it most difficult to differentiate between what is misinformation and what is reality.
0: Well, let me ask then what you guys think is the proper role then for social media platforms in curating this and trying to control it and exerting any kind of editorial control. We know that Facebook and Twitter were, were criticized after 2016, but these companies have actually, I think, done a lot um, ahead of 2020, including today, I believe, right before we started recording, Facebook decided to take down all QAnon uh, accounts across its platform. But what, if we grant that it's important that people make informed choices when they're on these platforms, what role then does that leave for the companies themselves in, in trying to curate this information? Well, it's a
1: good question, and I don't ever want to give these big tech platforms a free pass because they've had a free pass for many years now. So they deserve to have that revoked for sure. Um, but I will say it's a, it's a hard problem from the beginning. I mean, they certainly have not wanted to be editors at all, at all, but of course, they've wanted the benefits of being only a platform at some times and, you know, content producers at other times. Um, but I I, I think what they can do are things like they did today. Like you said, just before this post, that was the big news that Facebook did remove all QAnon accounts, which I think was around 1500 accounts. So certainly there's there's many more out there but that's what they've likely tracked down which is different than sort of filtering or censoring individual posts about QAnon ideas that, I, I, that they haven't stopped. I want to make that clear to the audience that it's, it's the accounts themselves, which is a big step. And, they, and there have been some big steps during the pandemic. I mean, it's the first time that I've seen much more specific set of rubrics for deciding what comes down and not when, you know, when dealing with pandemic. So I think what they can continue to do is they need to you know, triple their workforce of fact checkers. I mean, it's the scale of the problem, even 15,000 fact checkers, which is what they've hired. And it does sound like a lot. But when you think about the scale of Facebook across the world, it's not enough. They do need to be pulled to the regulatory table. You know, there could be questions about how their algorithm works, how they They downweight and upweight certain things. They certainly could do some of those things. They've found some things have been counterproductive. You know, if you put up a big label that says this is maybe misinformation or disinformation, that sometimes creates even more engagement with that content. So you need to be working with HCI researchers, human computer interaction researchers that have studied the sort of secondary and tertiary effects of of design decisions they certainly need to come up with policies so they at least have a set of guideposts to use. And that's where there has been some improvements, but even there, there's a lot of uh, fuzzy areas for many of the platforms on several topics, even related to the election still. And actually the election integrity partnership put out a nice post about these differences, especially when it comes to delegitimization posts. They can s- improve by uh, engaging with, I think the academic researchers and, and with government officials around this, they, it's a hard thing, though, if you care a lot about the First Amendment, which I certainly do. I'm a huge First Amendment advocate, so it makes it difficult to remove, for example, the, the video that the, of the Bakersfield doctors that were um, they did this big public release saying, hey, we've had this many tests in our clinics, and if we extrapolate to all of California, we actually have a much lower IFR rate. This is the infection fatality rate. Well, there was a major problem with that analysis, and it was eventually taken down by YouTube, but it was seen by 5 million people by that point, and it spread like wildfire on the web. But what's interesting about that particular one, there may be reasons to keep something like that up there. And that's, that's just an example of the, the complexity, speaking of complexity, of what should be taken down and what shouldn't. The, po- the main thing here that, that these, these social media companies need to do is involve public the public around this conversation. It's too difficult to do on their own and it's too important and its role it's, that it's playing in society. So it needs to come and have these discussions about how to do this, what are the rules, how do you govern bots, how do you you govern accounts, verified accounts, what are your rules around political ads? I mean, that's the big difference, at least I think from 2016, 2020, there's more restrictions, at least on Facebook around political ads and they're gonna not allow certain ads a week before the election. There's all sorts of things they're doing, but again, it it just seems more scattered. And I think that's why, I think they should be begging for regulation at this point.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And there was recently, uh, the Fade Act was something introduced just last week while we were writing up that blog post, which has yet to be fully fleshed out, but it should give a little bit of guidance at least. It's acknowledgement from... The doj that they are looking towards some sort of top-down um, executive governance of this issue and um, we'll see how that progresses i just want to mention I, this reminds me of an article you co-authored in the washington post with emma spiro and kate starbird your colleagues that was about the spread of a covid 19 uh, piece of misinformation that was tweeted 15,000 times um, and then it, they put up a warning label and only 750 tweets um, went out about this correction and so i'm wondering we've talked about a little bit about emotion and complexity. So what is it about misinformation that makes things seem to go viral? And this, this can be quick and we can move on to other things, but I'm just wondering, what is it about these pieces of misinformation and can we predict in any way, have you been able to come up with any sort of um, machine learning algorithms that allow you to see a piece of information and anticipate that that piece of information will go viral versus another piece of information that's also uh, in the same realm. Well, it's much more interesting
1: to read a story about man biting dog than the other way around, even if it's really rare. Again, it's one of these human frailties that we, we have that we're interested in those sensational stories, and they tend to spread more. So if you were going to design a message that you wanted to spread, you would certainly take that into account. And so these, the, the misinformation aspect of a story almost always spreads far, far further and you know, orders of magnitude further than the corrections. And you you see this across the board, not just on social media. You see this in academic literature when there's retractions on papers. Most of the citations are accumulated before the retractions you almost get no attention. You see this in journalism. You see it across the board. It's, It's sort of this natural law of the universe, I suppose. And whether we can predict it, there are some efforts right now, research efforts at looking at certain kinds of signals in the language and in, you know, in the story, but I, I teach classes in machine learning. This is not a problem that machine learning can predict so well, because there's just so many layers of, of complexity when it comes to language and imagery that's usually involved with this and, and context and all the other things. So it's really hard to predict. Certainly there should be some efforts to try to do that. Um, you can get the, the thing you can predict on is if, if you look at sort of previous downloads or a specified time in certain communities, you can get some idea of what might be spreading. Um, The thing about how this relates to the last question too is one of the things that I would love to see on Twitter, for example, or any social media company are more formal ways to do retraction. Because a lot of times it's honest mistake. We've talked mostly today about a lot of these nefarious intentions and and individuals that are purposely trying to um, deceive and push out um, disinformation. But a lot of the misinformation out there is honest mistake and a lot of these propagandists just grab that information and just push stuff that's already out there and sort of use the us to spread that and so if i make a mistake i would love as a user to say oh i made a mistake i need to tell all my users that that post that i just put out is wrong and there's just no real way to do that well and to not have that kind of corrective mechanism in play in social media today in 2020 to me is surprising. so it's something worth thinking about trying to uh, come up with different design um, ideas that hopefully maybe some of the social media companies would think about going, uh, going forward.
0: Jevin, is there any evidence in social sciences in research that any of this exposure to misinformation on social media actually leads to behavior change in the real world? Like I was exposed to a fake story about a candidate and therefore I did or didn't vote or voted for a different candidate.
1: There are efforts, but I haven't seen any study that convinced me that they'd solved that really difficult question. And and just so everyone knows, measuring behavioral change is incredibly difficult. When I talk to my psychology colleagues, that is sort of one of the holy grails of many in um, social psychology and behavioral psychology. And so there have been efforts. There are, I, I could speak to several studies I've seen even just in the last three to six months, but it's really, really hard to show convincingly. And so I would say to answer your question, I don't know of anything yet that has shown it where I could say there's the study That's the, that, that shows. I mean, there's, I can give you some examples. I've well, then
0: that... let, me, let, me ask you a, let me ask you the harder question then, which is, let's say the research showed that it didn't change people's behavior, then would it be still important to try to limit or get rid of misinformation?
1: I think so, because it clogs the lines of real important discourse. And so I'll give you a specific example. So during, you know, during this rise of QAnon um, over the last several months during this pandemic, and it's a relatively new phenomenon, it sort of rooted itself in 2017, you know, building off of Pizzagate and others, but this rise... Um, is something that a lot of people just ignored for a long time, including the social media companies. And then here we are today um, hearing that Facebook's removing all those accounts. It's because in that case, even if it doesn't change behavior, if people that are reading QAnon are like, well, they sent something that was false about the elections again or, or around masks or, or whatever. I, you know, I don't believe it. it's not going to change my behavior. But the problem is they're they're hijacking real movements, like they hijacked it, for example, the hashtag Save the Children. So Save the Children is something we should be putting attention to, and there are real organizations out there trying to do something about it. It certainly is not QAnon, but all of this attention and even money uh, was being dumped into the sort of QAnon efforts around Save the Children. and It, it takes away from real uh, efforts. So. So even if it doesn't change behavior, what it does do is it clogs the lines of effective collective discourse that we need in a democracy.
2: I just want to follow up on that really quickly. I think a lot of the discussion with behavior change always brings to mind kind of long-term sustained change where somebody goes from not believing one thing to believing something in the long run. A lot of what I've seen has been more about immediate consequences. I think elections are perfectly set up to be manipulated for misinformation and to get people to change their behavior in the short term because they play off that emotion that we talked about earlier. I, when I worked in, in the healthcare industry um, in South Africa, we knew we basically based a lot of our work on the fact that you could get people to do something, a one-off thing based on emotion. You could either use fear or you could use the uh, elicit some sort of uh, positive reaction and they would do it once. But if you wanted long-term sustained behavior change, that required much more input, much longer and sustained effort. But the case with elections is you don't actually need behavior change over the long run. If you can convince someone that some large piece of misinformation threatens the credibility of a candidate in the short term, that's a difference in a vote. And so it's this very specific type of behavior change that threatens democracy and electoral, institution, electoral institutions more specifically, that I think is a massive problem here.
0: But why does it? I mean, the campaigns are campaigns. Politicians lie all the time. People hear lies, they're exposed to things that are, are not really true. The the bigger question to protect electoral integrity is the institutions themselves protecting the vote count, right? Who cares what people have information about, even if it's all lies? What difference does it make?
2: Well, the misinformation could be about that vote count itself, and I think that's so. Why the misinformation? So why they don't?
0: Who cares what people? So it's for election administrators to declare the result and certify the winner. It's not for people on social media to decide who won the election.
2: I hope you're correct. I hope that in the aftermath of the coming election, there are very few people that are actually unwilling to accept the results that are put forth. But but
0: that's what I'm saying. It's not up to users of Facebook to decide who won the election. It's up for election administrators to certify it. So if a bunch of people on Facebook do or don't believe what election administrators have certified what difference does that make that i think is the real crux of what what is the extent to which we want to be concerned about the effects of misinformation on people's actual behaviors what if it doesn't you know change their behavior what if it really doesn't matter to how the election itself is conducted
2: i think even if the election goes through and the results are approved if there's a substantial portion of the population that does not find the winner to be legitimate that is a major problem for democracy as a whole and the democratic institutions that underpin the conduct of future elections and kind of the shared discourse that we've been talking about. And my quick response, James, and, and I'm enjoying listening to, to you because you guys are the
1: experts in the political science realm. Um, that's why I, I enjoy these conversations very much. The question is, you know, what if it what if it doesn't matter? What if it has no effect? That, that could be the case. And then we can discuss it as the two of you have discussed. But what if it does? And I think the likelihood that it does, you know, is more if I was putting my money on it right now and I don't have any, you know, I don't have necessarily any evidence and we've done some small studies at looking at for example, whether these, these coronavirus banners on Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms were changing people's behavior and what they would read and click later and what they thought about certain policies. The evidence is, of course, very mushy. Um, but, but I think the, the real question is, you know, and, and more likely is, you know, what if, what if, it, what if it is?
0: Well, I would also say that I think perhaps the bar for tolerance of misinformation for the American public, for instance, on social media, when they think it's coming from other sources in the United States, might be different than foreign influence. And so, Jevin, I'm wondering if you can talk about sort of the difference in, you know, I'm an American on Facebook, I see an American relative tweet, you know, click something or like it and I do or don't believe it, that to me feels different than if, say, the Russian government is specifically targeting American users on American platforms about things that are going on in the United States. Is that a distinction without a difference, or is that something important?
1: I think it is important. And I think it's one of those things that we can all agree on, you would imagine. This might be one of those rare bipartisan agreements from our leaders and from the public that we don't want meddling from outside actors especially outside bad actors that are just trying to manipulate so i think that's that there is a distinction between domestic meddling and and foreign meddling. i mean we can still quibble about you know what kind of meddling even domestically should be allowed um you know given you know certain objectives that you have for an election, but um, yeah, when it comes to ads and things like that, but but certainly, you would think foreign meddling would be something you don't want. And one thing that seems to be quite clear, uh, looking at the evidence. Just over the last six months from my colleagues, uh, even in our election integrity partnership and, and across the country, is that there is meddling going on. There's different strategies that are being employed there. A lot of the strategies seem to be a little bit more hyper-local, where they utilize, instead of trying to push, let's say, for example, viral campaigns, they're focusing more if it's on local na- digital neighborhoods. There's you know, all sorts of, we could talk ad nauseum about um, all the different strategies that are you know, likely being employed. I mean, one that was really surprising to a lot of people a few months ago was hiring actual American journalists to go and and write stories that fit some narrative partly because these journalists a lot of them were out of out of a job because poor journalism has been decimated uh, by the current business models from big tech companies and so some of them took out these jobs they didn't even know who they were working for and they were writing basically stories to to fit you know the the narrative of some of these um, campaigns and so there's all sorts of new strategies but you know what we do know is that there is meddling going on and whether that's something we want i would imagine that might be a bipartisan Big no thank you.
0: Well, it would make Americans hypocrites because of course their government has influenced information yeah. <laughs> and weaponized information in other countries' elections for decades. But we, we'll, we'll save that for a different discussion. Different podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I did want to ask you guys, um, just for listeners, because I think you know people can get kind of glib and smug about this, but we've all probably retweeted something that wasn't exactly right. And you even brought up the point of the, the Rachel Maddow show having um, a photo that wasn't recent. Are there like quick and easy heuristics that listeners can think about when they're looking at information on social media that sort of help you decide whether you should squint and scratch your chin and figure out if it's true or not or is it is is everything rapidly changing and, and the technology and the misinformation is so ahead of the curve that it's actually very very hard to figure out?
1: Well first of all, it's very hard and there's no you know magic bullet um, but I will say that there are some basic strategies that we can use as users. And there's some more sophisticated strategies. The more, more basic strategies are just, if it sounds too good to be true or too bad to be true, it probably is. I mean, corroborating um, what you're finding, looking at if others have reported the same kinds of things, look at the source, look who's you know, maybe funding a particular news source or, or media site. If it's not, not one that you recognize look and whether it is creating an emotion uh, if it confirms some of your biases and you just love reading it just sort of seems to make sense you might want to pause a little bit I mean one of the things that we talk about in the center a lot when talking to the public and to students and high school students and middle school students is just think more share less if we would just put a little bit of friction in those Lines on the web and stop sharing by just looking at a headline or just looking at an image that someone sends me. Then you can at least take a second to employ some of these strategies. Now, there's more sophisticated strategies too, you know, that fact checkers use and investigative reporters and people that are really advanced searchers on the web. And we we go through those and talk about those too. But I would say, just for me personally, and I live and breathe this every single day and night. Is it too good to be true? And and also, you know, just that what you just said, James. It just doesn't just makes you scratch your head. Doesn't sound right. And who's telling me this? How do they know? What do they have to gain from it? What are they pushing? What are they selling? Is it an idea or are they actually selling me vitamins or something? You know, I mean, these are things to think about. But certainly um, it comes from just getting better at this and creating habits of mine. And that takes time and that
2: takes effort. I think that gets at your syllabus for calling BS that you've promoted through the center and, and through your work and research. And I'm wondering, you're talking about this effort. These are the voters. These are the people that are going to be making these decisions. I'm wondering how you think we can scale these skills to the wider public. How can we ensure that future generations are able to deal with what seems like a never-ending wave of misinformation that's ahead of us? So how do we scale these skills to the public? I think one of the biggest
1: things we can do, Morgan, is invest more in media literacy from K-1 to K-99. It's this tool that we have, this, this social media tool that society has, is relatively new, when you look at it in terms of human history. And we need to to train the public to deal with, with technology that's constantly trying to manipulate us, to help us deal with the onslaught of information that we get all the time, and to create habits that are used not just in your communication class and not just in your class when you you know when you learn about politics or, or a class that you learn you know when you're learning you know as an engineer about mathematics it sort of it, it permeates everything that we do and so I, I think one of the things we can do is to, we need to scale up education efforts now it's the long-term play on this to teach people how to become better discerners of information and it's hard for everyone and, and by the way everyone can become better at this and the things that we talk about in our book, Carl and I, we, we spend a lot, most of our time talking about misinformation that comes wrapped in data and numbers and statistics and algorithms. And, and we say in this book that anyone can do this. You don't need an advanced degree in computer science or statistics or data science. Anyone can do this. And we, we, we really meant the book to be, and the class, an empowering class and book, that anyone can get better at this. And I think that we can do this formally and informally. And so we have great efforts going on here in the in the Pacific Northwest. So um, this week, or I think next week, there is going to be the first Misinfo Day Junior by organized by some high school teachers around the area. And they're gonna have this big event where students and parents and everyone's gonna be talking about misinformation and the ways to become better BS callers. And it's it's something that they're building off, something we had done we've done at the university where we bring hundreds of high school students from across the, um, the state each year to campus and spend a whole day talking about misinformation and disinformation and becoming better users. So it's, it's I think it's got to be things like that. I mean, the legal tools that we have, they'll help a little bit. And, and of course, the technology platforms will claim that they can solve this problem. They won't. They'll probably make it worse. But one of the things we can do is we can educate the information consumer to let them know about the ways in which they manipulate, the ways in which they can to go and check whether that post seems too good to be true or too bad to be true. And so that's what I think we should be doing. I think we should be investing more in media literacy at the middle school, high school, college, and all through all the way up through K-90, K-99, or, and beyond that, of course, too. So that, that's what I think we need to do to scale up. And we need to do it now.
0: Great. Well, that's a great place, I think, to end. Jevin or Morgan, do you want to say anything else?
1: I think the, the main thing i want to say is thanks for putting this together and if people are interested to learn more about the topic to become a better information discerner, discerner or to be a digital volunteer and look out for misinformation around the election please contact us at the center you can go to our website cip.udub.edu, and you can learn more how to get engaged and and this is going to take a team effort from everyone uh, across society to sort of deal with this information this infodemic That we're all living through right now. And hopefully we'll be in a better place a year from now, 10 years from now, and and look back at time. Remember that time when fake news was everywhere? You know, I mean, we've always had fake news, but certainly it does seem like it's really at a higher density. And the only way that's going to improve is for everyone to to get all hands on deck.
0: Great. Well, thanks a lot, Jevin West. Thanks a lot, Morgan Wack.
1: Thanks so much for having me, James and Morgan. Great conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wichdock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political economy at gmail We would love to hear from you.